Hello, everyone, and welcome to So Very Wrong About Games, a podcast in which we are extremely incorrect about games. I'm your co-host, Mark Bigney, and with me, as always, is my loyal co-host, Mike Walker. How are you doing, Walker? Fantastic, Mark. I'm very, very glad to hear that. So, there's been some exciting news about Chucks. That's the Shut Up and Sit Down Expo that we are going to be attending from October 4th to 6th in lovely Vancouver. They've been announcing new guests, specifically Mike Selinker and Nikki Valens. I'm very, very excited to... Well, I hope I'm going to be able to meet Nikki Valens. I don't know if we're going to be VIPs or if we're just going to be let in like the unwashed masses. And then at some point, someone's like, oh, these guys showed up. We only invited them because they, we thought they wouldn't come. We need, we need canned content. Yeah, exactly. The, the perfunctory legal requirements, you know, feel like, like one of those destination weddings. It's like, well, well we need 50% French, French content, right? So that's why they brought you along. Oh no! It's even more insidious than that. <laughs> they're gonna they're gonna shove a microphone in front of my face. They're gonna ask me something about Quebec, and then they're gonna leave, and we're just gonna be stuck at the the, the kids' table for the rest of the event. Oh, oh this is terrible. Anyway, I'm very much looking forward to meeting some people there, uh, including some friends and some new friends possibly to be made because my social circles are a little confined as it is right now. Looking at no one in particular, like a person across the table at me. Duh! Moving on, uh, so we are going to talk about the games we played last week, we're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter, and we are going to talk about our feature game, which is Hellboy the Board Game. We are not going to have any Eurus, we're not going to have a feature topic because we are on the summer schedule, deal with it. So, with that in mind, let us proceed to the games we played last week. I got to play several more instances of Just One. Just One is the only SDJ nominee that we endorse. Uh, Walker hasn't tried all of them, but that doesn't matter. Uh, having tried all three, I, I can definitely say that Werewords and the other one. Well, okay. Well, llamas. We, llamas. We haven't really played Llamas with a high enough player count, to be perfectly certain about to be Llama. Fair. To be fair. Anyway, uh, but just one is great. It's a word game very much like Codenames, except it has... So the one virtue... Let us let us harken back to the great controversy of Decrypto. The great Decrypto controversy of 2019. In it, we were, we were accused of being tasteless hacks who didn't understand the true genius of Decrypto. And there was one element of Decrypto that I absolutely acknowledge uh, is arguably superior to Codenames. And that is, in Decrypto, everyone gets a chance to be the person guessing the clues, and everyone gets a chance to be the one giving the clues. So you, you trade off roles that way, as opposed to Codenames. Just one has that structure that Decrypto has, where you're, all, you're, all, you're giving clues and you're also being able to guess clues. And so, in that sense, it really has one of the, the, one of the only things that I preferred in Decrypto, but it still has a slightly more fluid, raucous quality that we appreciate in Codenames. I watched Just One being played and not to say that there's a lot there to be developed, but it's it, it just has that essence of it, it just flows and it has just what it needs to be an extremely fun game. So one of our friends, one of our mutual acquaintances, for whom English is not his first language, he has a certain reticence with respect to word games. And it's completely understandable. I've been in second language situations, and practically every situation for you is a second language situation. And he said, no, I, I don't want to play this. He said, you know, we have room, you can join us, you can jump in in the middle, actually, is what we what specifically said, because the game is uh, flexible. And he said, no, 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 I, I, I don't want to. After him watching a round or two, particularly after watching someone fall flat on their face, missing an obvious clue. He, he then chuckled and said, I should have joined you. I can do this. And it's it's just really approachable. It's even simpler than Codenames in some ways. And I, the only sense in which they're, they're, they're comparable is that, you know, they're, they're party-type word games with a slightly more gamerly element. But just one has that advantage, as I said, of being purely cooperative in addition to that notion of everyone giving clues and everyone, um, everyone making guesses as well. 
I did see some repeats in cards. I've now played just one about half a dozen times, and there were some repeats in cards. And in theory, that shouldn't be a problem because every card has five possible clues and you guess you pick one at random. But I've had some repeats already in, in specific topics. And that's kind of awkward, especially if you're playing with uh, the, the, the same people over. So I, I'd like more cards, but I think this is one of those games where you could easily mock up your own cards without any difficulty, unlike something like Codenames where they all have to match. But... Just one has been a, been a great hit, and it's definitely going to be something that I'm going to keep tossing in my bag whenever I go to gaming events, and uh, that is just one. I played Lords of Hellas again. I don't want to go on about Lords of Hellas again, but someone recently got it in their collection, and he is loving it, so he keeps bringing it to game night, and I am more than happy to play it. And I just the only thing I'm going to say is that I think it just shines at four players. I remember two weeks ago I played it at three, and then now after playing it at four, it just evens out the victory conditions, I think. A lot smoother at four. And that's all I'm going to say about Lords of Hellas. Have you been, well, I'm going to ask you a question. Have you been seeing the victory conditions, uh, all the victory conditions pop up with, with some regularity? Because my experience has been that they're not necessarily all equally common, but the threat or the possibility of any of the endgame conditions appearing has been has been possible. True. At th- at, it seems, though, at four players, it's sort of like a force thing at the end. Like, you sort of spring it at the end. It's like, okay, suddenly you get one of the victory conditions, well, i.e. the territory one is what won the game this time. Okay. We're at three. Like I, like I explained to you, I had forced, like, every victory condition except, you know, the having five temples. I, you know, I was, I was protecting, protecting a god statue. I was – I had two – my final victory was having two full areas. That's, a, that's another thing that's weird about the rules, the – Lands is what they're talking about. Yeah, so they, they, they. I think it might have been a. The terminology is a bit. Weak, I think yeah. it was maybe was a language uh, translation problem. Maybe they just you know switch those two around. But other than that, I think at three players, a lot more of the victory conditions come up. Whereas four players, it's they people tend to concentrate on one, and you have to try to stop them. Hmm. And I really like that gameplay better than you know, all of them happening and trying to, you know, stop them all at once. Because one of the things that we really like about Lords of Hellas is the different possible victory conditions and forces you to stay flexible and and makes different games play out differently. But of course, there's been some chatter on the internet about how this victory condition is too easy or this victory condition is too precipitous. I find it heartening, though, that generally speaking, there's no consensus about which victory condition that is, leading me to believe that it's more groupthink or a couple of aberrant sessions rather than any flaw in the design. But who knows? And I'm as as we've said before, we're very much looking forward to seeing the expansion content and seeing how it ruins the game. That's true, and, and because there have been so many new players, I like how it's being played differently. Like uh, instead of you know trying to kill the monsters outright, people are like sniping parts of the monster, getting the cards they need, the artifacts they want, the priests they want, and utilizing uh, you know power ups way more than 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 usually. Like tons of priests are coming out, and it's really interesting to see it being played differently than what we're used to. Good stuff. And that is Lords of Hellas. Played a second game of Tammany Hall, and I have to report that we... So I played it with five, because that was one of the goals. Playing it with three seemed promising, but there seemed to be some strange elements, and people recommended, and it seemed obvious on the face of it that it would be better to try with five, which is the maximum player count. Unsurprisingly, because it's an area-majority game, and area-majority games tend to shine with more players, although there are, of course, exceptions. And I, of the five players, I was the one who enjoyed it the least. Everyone at the table was very, very pro Tammany Hall, 
but upon my second playing, I felt some of the shine come off of it after the first playing. Here's why. There are a couple of, of, of reasons. One of them is that one of the neat things in three players at the Tammany Hall is that the regions gradually open up as the game progresses, leading the game to feel like it kind of has an arc. Now you might be thinking, ah, but again, there are majority games, you want more, more people involved. But the number of three-way contests in given regions, there were no four-way contests ever in the game that I played, and the number of three-way contests were relatively rare. It was almost all two-way contests. So at that point, you're not really getting any additional leverage from the additional players. You're just getting more uh, playtime, and you're losing that element of the board, gradually expanding. And as a result, with this larger board available from the outset, I actually found that there was more opportunities even with a lar larger number of players, for people to just go off and hide and be by themselves. And that, that I wasn't a huge fan of. Maybe that was just an aberrant play. The second problem that I had was, it really highlighted some of my concerns about the blind bidding. Because Tammany Hall is a game where in order to win an election, you blind bid with victory points. And that's rough. And so you might conclude, therefore, that in addition to the standard problems of blind bidding games, this is one of those games where you win by not getting into fights with people, and you have no ability to control whether you engage in fights. That's one of the problems that I have with Taj Mahal. It's a problem that I have with lots of games like that. I don't mind games where you get into you know repeated fights with people where you might overcommit and overbid. I just don't like it where those kinds of calculations can be scuppered by the fact that someone can pick a fight with you without your control and without your foreknowledge. And, and as a result, you end up sinking resources uh, for strange arbitrary conflicts. That happened a couple times, but the even bigger problem was that the person who came in second place, and this is not a criticism of the person's play, this, is, this, this to me is more of a structural problem of the game, the person who came in second place engaged in zero conflicts ever, and all he did was just amass influence in one interest group, and he never spent anything. He just only went for one color, accumulated as much of it as possible, and just had them on lockdown. And so as of turn two or three, he had them on lockdown, so no one wanted to pick a fight with him at all because his position was so strong. He, didn't, he only played about half the game because he, was, he, he, did, he didn't participate in elections. He didn't participate in anything else. He ignored all the other ethnic groups and just, it was the Italians, not that that matters. And he just had this stack of chips by the end of the game. And indeed, when I was contesting elections, because I was, you know, trying to play the game partially according to my recollection of how I'd played it before, and partially in my understanding of good strategy, just intuitively, and also in furtherance of the theme, I thought maybe it'd be nice to win elections in this game about politics. And frequently you end up, end up in, in situations where, you know, you spend two points to gain one. And now maybe this is just me being an idiot, but if the smart play is not to contest elections ever in your political game and just go off and do multiplayer solitaire in a game about every majority, that's kind of weak. Now, I... Again, this is just on the strength of a couple of plays, but the blind bidding aspect really seems to be more problematic in, in on the second play and more in, in, in tune with my a priori fears than it was in the first game. Now, maybe that's just because in the first game I was in that uh, I was in that position of having amassed so much influence that people didn't fight with me in the same way. So maybe I'll try it again. I'm, I'd be somewhat curious to hear uh, your your renewed thoughts because you said you played it a number of years ago, but I can't did. really remember. I should play it again, but. That Leading into what you're saying, there's some games that lead to that. This, you know, where someone sees an aspect of the game and they try to utilize it. And I've seen it happen twice. Like we've seen it in Food Chain Magnet, where someone, you know, goes for the waitress strategy, and because it seems so promising at first, I'm, I'm I like it. Or in Scythe, I've seen someone try to amass tons of resources because they say, oh, they look at the victory point chart and they say, oh, resources, I'm just going to sit on these things and amass these tons of resources and try to get victory points that way. And I've seen in 
both those circumstances it not work like at the beginning a huge ramp up at the beginning and then because they don't utilize any of their game mechanics they quickly falls apart and you know everyone else you know quickly overpowers them sure and again the, the person who did this thing didn't win he came in second so this isn't necessarily a, a criticism of being a dominant strategy. This is just an indication about how the blind bidding feeds into a whole bunch of potentially over-costly mistakes, which is a style of contest that I don't really like, especially when the contests are triggered by actions outside your control. And that also highlights another element of the, the quote-unquote politics in a five-player game. In a, in a three-player game, at, after an election, the mayor has to hand out political offices to people, and there are four available political offices. One of the political offices is flatly better than the mayor. They get a point every round, basically, whereas the mayor just gets uh, three points over four rounds. And this role is the deputy mayor. So being deputy mayor is great. And in a three-player game, we actually tried to negotiate for it. It's like, okay, I won't contest you here and I'll leave you alone, but make me deputy mayor once the, the mayoralty comes around. In a five-player game, deputy mayor has to be passed out. All the roles have to be passed out. And so that actually reduced the incentive to negotiate over these things. And also, finally, as my final complaint about five-player versus three-player, in five-player, turn order started to become super, super arbitrary. It's an area-majority game. Going last is a huge advantage. In El Grande, which is undisputedly the king of area-majority games, turn order is part of the game. It's part of the consideration about how you jockey for various actions. In Tammany Hall, who is first is always mayor. Are you sitting to the right of the mayor, or are you sitting to the left of the mayor? Congratulations! You can either be in a hugely advantageous position or boned. Through oh. Yeah. And in a three-player game, that's not a huge deal, right? In a three-player game, being to the left or the right of the start player is less of a big deal. And, of course, someone might say, oh, well, then try to make sure that the person you want to be mayor is mayor. It's like, look, if, if it's a five-player game and it's a question of who is going to win the most areas, sometimes you don't have the ability to throw it to somebody else just because that would be better for, for turn order for you. Anyhow, I had serious misgivings about Tammany Hall, but I was alone at the table. Everyone else at the table loved the experience so as as a partial result of that i'm probably going to have a chance to play it again whether i want to or not and uh, perhaps more details to follow and that was tammany hall all right mark and i played a game of small city and i'm just going i'm not going to compare any game mechanics to spirit island but i just i look at it the same as spirit island because i i see where the game is there but it's just totally not for me and i i never want to play it again <laughs> so why don't I like Small City? In Small City, it's very much like you're playing a Tetris game. You have all these shapes that are trying to, you're trying to fit in onto your little map. It's a city-building game, and I love city-building games. I love where you have to, you know, get cool combos together. But this just seemed overly painful to me. It's like heads down. A lot of There's a lot of mechanics going on where only certain shapes can be beside certain things. So you have no idea if anyone at the table is doing it right. So... It's you know like it's like that Robo Rally syndrome or the Steampunk Rally was the other one where these all these cards are out and they all have these like crazy abilities and you have no idea if they're doing it right. Anyway, those kind of games not for me. The rules were like completely overly fiddly. It's like you can put a you know tile here on Wednesday but only in the morning and it was just so weird and it, you seem to be handcuffed all the time. It's like you you can't do anything that you want to do. It's like I there's three different kinds of building resources which is fine but when you have your base building why can't you use any kind of like there's lots of games out there that just say you can supplement 
any building material, like the most expensive one for the cheapest one. And I think that is the best way to go, with, especially in this game, because, you you know, why is this the best way? Because the only interaction in this game is just take that, where you're going into other people's cities and you're taking over their buildings so they can't use them. So any sort of strategy that you're trying to plan is kind of arbitrary because you have no idea what kind of buildings you're going to have access to. Well, you can say, hey, Mike, you just use their buildings, but they may not have the buildings you want. Or someone else might already have taken them ahead of you. Or you can only have one person, you know, with an upgrade, you can have two people per city, but you can only have one person in everyone's city. And I just, uh, yeah, I don't like that. I I don't like that game called uh, Small City. So Small City was designed by Alban Villar, who also did Clinic, which I believe you pledged for. Sweet. <laughs> now I'm even more excited. And uh, Tramways, he also... Small City is, is allegedly the third game in a trilogy, starting with Town Center and then Card City. I had... Uh, I, this is the first Alban VR design that I've played, and when looking into it, I kind of got similar vibes to Vital Lacerda, which is this is a guy who designs the kind of Euro games that I don't want to play. And uh, sure enough, I didn't like Small City either. Now, I liked the city building part. The part, the building restrictions, I found easier to parse about what to build where. There's this notion of upgrading buildings that I think is very cool. You get to upgrade for free, and you can upgrade infinitely so long as you meet all the requirements, but it takes more time because you can't upgrade something you built this turn. That part, I thought was great. Yeah, no, like I said, halfway through the game, I really love building the city. I love, I love oh, I can't, like, next time I have all these plans, I, you know, I, I, can, I know how to do it differently, but... I don't want to. <laughs> well, the, the thing is, is that it really feels like he had this, uh, and I don't know if this is actually what happened in the development process, but stripping it apart ex post facto, it seems like he had this system for design, for, for building a city, and then he's like, oh, okay, well, this is a solvable problem. This is a no-luck, perfect information, solvable issue. I need some player interaction. And he came up with the system called Bafflingly Tourists, just as a side note, a lot of the theming in Small City makes no sense. Uh, I think it would actually make more sense as if you were managing your own country, because there's this weird immigration system, and you send out tourists, but they're not tourists, they're saboteurists. They're saboteurs. They go and they commit industrial and commercial espionage. Yes, not only do they take over your building so you can't use it, but they also cause pollution in your city. Oh, well, that they just do by being around. I mean, that's not their fault. It's just, they, they go into, normally you send your own citizens to work in a factory and they produce some goods for you. Or you can send out tourists who then go work in a factory and then send the resources back home. Like, that, that's not how things work. I'm sorry. But anyway, uh, and this, this actually impeded a little bit of the understanding about how tourists work because they don't act like tourists in any way. And the tourist part is, much like Tammany Hall, turnover problems are massive. Massive. Huge. Now, granted here, you can control being first player and take the hit. That's fine. But again, are you to the right or the left of the start player? Congratulations. And there's this weird notion of how to move your people around, which exists to facilitate the tourist mechanics. If it didn't have that, and it were just a function of moving your own people around, that would be fine. You could have a a work-rest cycle and all that kind of thing, and it would be thematic, and it would be fine. But no, there's this bizarre notion of how your people move around and how factories can only work half the time, but a tourist could work there the entire time. Ah, So everything about the building the actual city I thought was great as a little solitaire, puzzly thing, which is normally not the kind of thing that I like. All the tourist bits, though, and everything else, all the player interaction, was just a mess. It slowed things down to a crawl. The rules were difficult to parse. All four of us were looking at the rulebook, 
reading the same two paragraphs, disagreeing about what the what the plain English meant and about the necessary nested conditions for tourist movement. And again, this is all about the tourists. The city building parts we had no problem with, and that was fun, engaging and still demanding. So I wish that there was a that there was a slightly different way to get some either variance or player interaction in a game of small city that didn't have all this other tourist nonsense. And honestly, it reminded me, it's very, very similar to Antiquity. Antiquity is the splatter game about, again, building a city, managing pollution even, but it's got more player interaction that rises organically because you're all participating on the same map, and the building restrictions are a lot more straightforward if that's one of your concerns because all the only question is, does it fit? Exactly. Do you have the resources and does it fit? It's prettier and the rules are more straightforward even though I think there's a greater strategic depth in antiquity. Anyway, they're not super similar games past this spatial element and it's a city building, but again, it's this notion of how do we introduce some degree of variance into a no-luck city building puzzle and antiquity did a much, much better job. So yeah, I'm not going to be revisiting Small City uh, voluntarily anytime soon. I'd have to be very persuaded to try another Alban Villar, certainly a, a big Alban Villar design. Maybe if it were more stripped down and I could be convinced that it had the good bits without all this other extraneous bits, maybe I'd give it a shot, but I'm actually, this is a bit off topic, but I'm actually curious to see how the market's going to respond to the Demarker reprint, because I used to like heavy Euro games, and there are lots of heavy Euro games that I still enjoy, but most of them were designed 10 to 20 years ago, and I don't mean to sound like some sort of crazy hipster, I was into heavy Euro games before they were cool, but a lot of the contemporary ones, again, by Vital Asserta, by Alban Villar, just not for me, they're, they're, they're designing for a different set of people, I think, but the back what used to be considered a heavy Euro game, that stuff I still enjoy, so I'm, I'm somewhat curious what's this, what the new Demarker is gonna gonna turn out anyway those are our reflections of small city on to the news and why it doesn't matter so there was an unexpected gift released to fans of assault on doomrock assault on doomrock is a very quirky very strange very innovative co-op fantasy adventure game with a fascinating spatial element and the designers, after releasing the expansion, announced that they probably weren't going to have another expansion, but they decided to just do a print-and-play mini-expansion, consisting of a new enemy type, a new class type, and a, and a couple of new traits. And uh, it was in playtesting for a while on their Discord channel, and now they've released the final version as of today. So there's a mini-expansion available for free. Uh, so you can get more Assault on Doomrock. It's this lovely little gift from Tom Sazyak and the people at Beautiful Disaster Games. It looks very compelling. I haven't tried the new stuff yet, but it's got full art. It's got everything, and these are cards that don't get shuffled in with any other cards, so you don't need to worry about proxies or anything like that. Just print it out and, and go to town. So there's more Doomrock to be had. Nice. I only have one news article, and that is a news story in itself. The fact that we're in a very slow period, I think. It was hard to find anything that I found remotely interesting. But there's a game on Kickstarter that has 15 days left over left on it, and it's called Last Aurora. It's sort of like a Mad Max race, post-apocalyptic. I know I hate those games, Mark. I know I never talked about post-apocalyptic games. But guess what? Post-apocalyptic. World is freezing. Icebreaker is chugging its way north. You must race to get to the icebreaker before either you, you know, die or you want to be there first so there's room for you or, you know, you know just make sure you get there. It's sort of like this racing, collect resources, beat your friends up. It looks like it's going to be very interesting, and I'm probably going to pledge for it. It's called Last Aurora Have you looked Kickstarter. Have you looked at Apocalypse Road? Probably not. Apocalypse Road is the post-apocalyptic vehicle combat version of Thunder Alley, which is a GMT game, so naturally you don't care. Well, it's been on P500 for a while. That looks potentially interesting. 
Gaslands is still a thing. True. true. <laughs> so anyway, you might want to take a look at Apocalypse Road. Very briefly, the Sadler Brothers, they have Blacklist Games. Their latest Kickstarter, Ultra Quest, has got about a week left on Kickstarter. We are huge fans of Street Masters. Not such big fans of Brook City. I took a look at Ultra Quest and said, oh, generic, somewhat generic European fantasy-looking game. I'm not too confident about this system. I took a miss, but anyway, they've they've got their, 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 their next project up, so you might want to take a look at that. It's doing re- it's doing better than their other projects. They seem to be getting a bigger profile as time goes on, and that's good for them. We, we like the Sadler Brothers. It's just, you know, I've got some suspicions about their latest developments. So now on to our feature game, which is Hellboy, which is a popular Dark Horse comic book hero. Mark, how does Hellboy fall into our little tree of board game history? So this was designed by James M. Hewitt and Sophie Williams. This is the first credited design of Sophie Williams. Uh, James Hewitt and Sophie Williams, their partnership is called Needy Cat Games. And as a first-time design, this is this is pretty impressive, so I'm, I'm definitely going to be looking forward to the output of Sophie Williams in the future. James Hewitt worked for a long time for Games Workshop. He was involved in designing Blitz Bowl and Adeptus Titanicus. He did some background work in Gore Chosen, which was, you know, occasionally cute. The new version of Blood Bowl. He did some Age of Sigmar development work. They're also involved in developing the Devil May Cry board game, for whatever that's worth. So I guess they're situating their company as, you know, we will do design work for licensed properties. Uh, so good for them, I guess. This was published by Mantic Games. Mantic Games has sort of, uh, for a long time, been sort of, and I, and I mean this in the nicest possible way, the cut-rate tabletop miniatures company. So they produced games like Dead Zone, Dreadball, Kings of War, uh, plastic minis that were of, uh, let's, shall we say, tolerable quality, but very, very inexpensive when compared to a lot of their competitors. But now they're kind of moving into uh, board games because although it has miniatures, Hellboy is definitely not a miniatures game. And I do have to say that the quality of the miniatures is definitely better than the previous stuff. But so Mantic, that, that's what Mantic is known for. And this is yet another co-op, vaguely crawly type skirmishy thing. It is, but what it is is a game that lets you just sit back and play it and have fun. You know, the flow is real. The story is there. You just and the, there's no fiddle, there's no huge fiddly bits in the rules. You just sort of you get thrown into the scenario, and all of the rules make sense. It's like you get to do this because of that, and of course because that's happening, this is going to be reduced a bit. Everything makes sense. There's nothing that you you know you know you have to look back in the rule book or anything that comes up. You ju- you can just quickly you know make up a little side rule or you know just change it up a bit. And you probably got it right. Can I ask you a question that I can't really answer for myself? Why do we keep coming back? Because this is a genre. So again, a pure co-op, vaguely sort of dungeon crawly type thing, squad based. You go in, you kill some monsters. There's a scenario. You run around tiles. This is something that we've been doing for years. Now, granted, we're absolutely going to talk about the evolutions of the system, and I don't mean to suggest that Hellboy is is purely derivative. But as a genre, as a type of game, this has been done so, so many times, and yet I keep coming back. I'm constantly willing to well, try the next one. I think it's. I think we've talked about this before. It's it's an adventure that you and your friends are going on. It's like a story that you're doing together. It's like. You're a group and you're going out on this fight and you're working together to get through this puzzle and or fight. And at the end, everybody wins or loses, but you're all taking part together. It is true that we absolutely prefer the co-op ones to the 1v all games. 
and the purely competitive stuff tends not to work well at all. There have been a variety of attempts, whether it's your older stuff or, or your more recent attempts, even things like Dungeon Alliance. You know, when it's purely when it's purely competitive, things tend to fall apart, both thematically and mechanically, and it certainly doesn't feel as good. But we should actually talk about the ways in which Hellboy tweaks the formula mechanically in ways that I think are very, very surprising and successful. Because, again, this is a licensed property, and although we've talked before about how licensed properties have been, have been upping their game in recent years, one would not have been surprised, I don't think, if Mantic had put together some sort of slapped-together, shoddy, derivative thing with Hellboy minis and said, there you go. But So the fact that there are some very interesting mechanical tweaks is a welcome surprise and very much appreciated. Uh, but before I get into that, I should just ask you, do you have any particular enthusiasm for the Hellboy theme? I do. I, I, I watched, I read zero of the comics, Okay, but I know of them and I know the, the general gist of them and I love the movie and the whole sort of steampunky, you know, mystic fighting demons type thing. I love that whole thing. Sure. But I'm sort of a little bit of, you know, what call Cthulhu-y, a little bit. Yeah, you know, a little Arkham bit of cosmic horror. horror yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I've read a small number of the comics. I really like the art style of Mike Mignella, uh, and uh, that is very much true of the game. This is this is parenthetical. We we should stress very much the comics, not the movies. Either the the two with Guillermo del Toro or the the more recent one without Guillermo del Toro. There were three movies. Really? Yes. Oh, two two with Ron Perlman, one without. Wow, I did not know that. It's a good thing we only talk about movies for five I seconds. I think I remember every year. now. I think I remember the second one now. Just the first one was so much better that maybe my mind wanted to forget the second one. Moving on. Moving on. (laughs) So, uh, I'd like to talk, first of all, about some of the ways in which Hellboy addresses some of the common problems of games of this ilk. And one of them is actually basing. This is the thing that we deal with all the time, and that is the notion of how do you prevent people from either moving or shooting the way they want to. What do you do when there's an enemy in your space? Now, and you're not going to be doing just a melee attack. And typically, what you do in relatively simple games like Hellboy is you either ignore the problem entirely and say, well, whatever, you can do whatever you want. Or you basically say that somebody who's based is pinned and can't move and blah, 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 blah. Hellboy's system is actually, I think, really, really good. Not only is it simple and accessible and you can just basically move away and take a wound from everybody that you're moving away from, so you get a, a, a pinning attack and that's it, but it also allows you to kite enemies a little bit. If you leave, instead of taking a wound, you can just drag them with you. Now, if you're a ranged character and you want to fire, that doesn't do you any favors because you still can't fire if there's an enemy in your space. But if you really want to drag them to a place where they might be more accessible to somebody else or what have you, those that little bit of options, again, on a relatively simple system, is one of those ways in which comparably simple games often mess up and make the game feel a lot more static and heavy and ponderous than it needs to. Since you talked about wounds, let's talk about the very, what I found, not, you know, overly amazing, but very interesting wound system. It's like everyone can take a certain number of wounds, you draw from this random pile and you put them on your little sheet, one, two, three, four, five, you have five wounds. Now are you out of the game? Not quite yet. If you take more wounds than your total. Now you start flipping over these random wounds because on the other side are depicted your other skills. So now you're going to get negative modifiers on your other skills. I thought that was very interesting. The fact that it's random, so you have no idea what's going to happen and you're, you know, it's not quite out, but you know, you can see you're getting debilitated. Some of your abilities aren't quite as good as they used to be. 
and you have no idea what it's going to be. And I thought that was very well done. The thing that I most appreciated about the wound system was that I think it did a very good job of managing players' tension level because the common enemies that you're going to be fighting, and in the base game, I should stress, they're all frogs, uh, which is a little bit disappointing. They're they're all just... We had to resort to... Uh, I'll say frog men, because when you say they're all frogs... It- Sounds very disappointing. It's all these like. Well, they're all they're all frog people. I yes, don't really exactly. Yeah, so they're all they're all frog people, uh, and we had to resort to what I now think of as Walker naming convention, uh, conventions, because when we had to differentiate the different types of boots in the Batman game, there was springy boot, there was wingy boot, and now with frogs, we have come at me, bro, frog. We have shambling frog. We have high five Zombie frog. frog. Yeah, high five frog. Yeah. Uh, so, um, but anyway, these enemies. Again, this is one of those calibration things that games of the cell have to do. The enemies have to be threatening, but just the right level of threatening. And every attack in Hellboy feels like it's going to put you in serious danger if you mess up because your wound track can fill up, and that looks like you're in serious trouble. But as you noticed, that doesn't knock you out right away. So you can actually take more hits than it feels like you can take, which I think is the perfect way to do things because it means that you don't get knocked out of the game or knocked out of effectiveness, but you still don't feel like you can just walk around tanking everything. Agreed, 100%. And the fact that we talk about tanking everything, everything, in games like this, like Batman, like Conan, like these IP games, usually the main character is overpowered and the most powerful thing. I think they did a great job in this game. Hellboy isn't the be-all, end-all. He takes hits just like everybody else, and he's very balanced with the other characters. That's a good point. And the way the wound system interacts, once you start taking these injuries, which are penalties, that plays into how the dice management works, which, again, I thought was a really, really clever way to do it. Now, you've commented before that you're sort of, you're endlessly tired of, but endlessly willing to consume games that work on a dice pool system. Hellboy kind of tweaks the system a little bit. You're always going to be rolling, well, always, almost always going to be rolling three dice of varying colors. But... Based on whether you get pluses or minuses, that's going to affect what color of dice it is. So you start with a base stat, how good someone is at a certain thing. And then if they have support from friends, if they spend extra actions to boost the action, etc., etc., that's going to go up with equipment, other things like that. But if there are multiple enemies in their own space, or if they happen to be coexisting with fire or things like that, then you start getting downgrades. And what's strange is that it's so much easier to do the calculation than a sort than if it were all numerically based, right? Exactly. That's what I was about to say. It's like easy. It's like these things are minuses. Those are positive. You know, these are now the colors you're going to roll and you roll them. It's, it was very quick and not painful at all. And there's no math. It's not, if you've, if you've got like three or four modifiers on an attack, which is not uncommon, which again shows you that there's a little bit of texture to how to maximize your actions. If there are three or four mod- modifiers on an attack, it's not that you have to constantly count up, well, plus one, plus two, minus one, minus whatever. It's like, okay, look, uh, these are the dice I get, chuck them, and then you just look at the results in the dice and everything's fine. And so I was actually surprised at how much mileage they could get out of this dice pool system and how it interacted with the actions and the wounds and everything else to really make things approachable and smooth. Well, not only that, we haven't even mentioned, you, you said that you roll three dice every time, but in fact you roll four. There's a blue die that you're rolling with every single test or attack that you're doing or defense. And usually with a dice like this, it's sort of like, it's like, oh no, there is a skull on that, which will... But it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not that dreaded missed die. It's like, oh, you missed, your whole attack is pointless. What it does, it will take your best die and just remove it from the pool, which is usually very bad, but not always terrible, right? But there's all sorts of other things on these, like multiply one of the dice or re-roll the dice or, or special symbols on the dice that will interact with 
different abilities either on the monster or on your player sheet and I thought they did a fantastic job that way because there's always that one hope that you're going to get this like huge attack off and I loved it. One final minor note on this dice system that I think is is really clever and helps manage to play man, helps to manage player experiences. It does the same thing that an RPG system called Numenera does. In Numenera, the game master never rolls any dice at all. Period. If an enemy attacks you, what happens is you, as a player character, you roll your defense stat. So the enemies never roll attacks. And what this does is it really gives the illusion of players always being in control. And it also helps to manage the perception of randomness in very subtle ways. And uh, Hellboy does the same thing. You never roll for enemy attacks. All you do is you roll your own defense stat. That's right. They're doing a heap of damage and you're just seeing how much you're able to block. And I really, I, I really felt that little little tweaks like that are emblematic of the kind of thoughtful decisions that have been made in uh, the, the Hellboy experience. The other great flow part is the enemies. They At the beginning of the game, you have your card. You get A, B, C, and D enemies. You put their cards up, and then they act in that order. So there's no question about which ones are going. And then there's a, they always attack whatever one makes sense, the closest one, or if they're arranged, whatever one's in distance. And then if there's ever any problem at all, you have this little chart where you move your all the different characters around. It'll tell you whoever the priority target is, and then that person is going to get attacked instead. I think you were quite right after playing for the first time that managing that priority chart is a tiny little bit of fiddly overhead, but what you get out of that, the the, the the payoff that you get, is there's never any question about what happens to whom. And a lot of event cards make reference to the priority target and a whole bunch of other things. It really does take away a lot of the uh, variance that a lot of co-op games like this do, where basically they basically shrug and say, oh, well, the players, the players get to decide. Which is fine, but I also appreciate it when a game lets you introduce a a subsystem that requires zero mental effort and lets you engage with uh, more texture and subsystems. For, because, for example, uh, one of the characters, Hellboy specifically, can manipulate the track and and uh, spend some actions to be the target. So it's just another way in which the uh, the you know the management of the player experience, I think, is has shown a lot of cleverness and thoughtfulness. The final th- bit that I, again, think solves a lot of the problems in that other games in this genre has is this notion of taking time. Very often in games like this, what you have is a situation where you're not quite ready to bust down the door to the next room, so you spend a couple of turns where everyone just gets in position, gets their ducks in a row, and you're just counting squares and putting everybody up to, to formation. And those turns, you still have to go through all the round structure and everything else, and it just feels a little tedious. It feels like there's serious downtime and a lull between action. Here, what you can do is you can literally take time. You can go to any available space on the map. Everybody gets to choose from a, a menu of rest actions. All your weapons automatically get reloaded. A whole bunch of negative status effects just go away and it's just a way all at once in one fell swoop to get rid of a lot of the other things that normally in games like this would be like okay i move two spaces here i move two spaces here okay i spend a couple cubes to get rid of the status condition are you ready yet no maybe next turn okay fine and here it's uh, it's not free it costs you but it's a marvelous little trade-off on top of a marvelous bit of streamlining. And I that was the first thing when reading the rules, when I started to think, you know, this, there might be something really clever here rather than just another iteration. And it it doesn't show up a whole lot, but when it does and when you have those trade-off moments where it's like, are we in a position where we can take time? 
I, I really like those group decisions. Another problem is, is when you have a game where you have to go in a specific order and you have to complete your entire turn before someone else can go. They leave it nice and open in this. You have three different actions you do, represented by three cubes, and you can go in any order you want. You just have to you know, finish a, uh, an action completely, and then another player can go, and it's this back and forth, and you can assist other people with your cubes, and that's a fant- another fantastic mechanic. Absolutely. That is also amazing. So can I have a, a small rant about... Not not so much Hellboy. Hellboy a little bit, but games like this in general. Yes. And that is Wasted Actions. And this, I, I have to say, as much as I adore the game, this pops up all the time in Seal Team Flicks, the only game that matters. Where you have two actions, but really only one of them makes sense, and you have to wait for everyone to get into position, and the, the, the second one's wasted. In games where there's not sort of a default action, where you can just sock away and, and help it for the future, that this, this can be an issue. Now, Hellboy manages that considerably with this notion of boosting either your own action or someone else's action. So if you've only got two things to do that you think you, uh, you, you've, you've got to do, well, then boost one of them, even if you think it's already a sure thing. And that really helps feel like you haven't wasted a bit of your turn. That having been said... Hellboy reliably introduces something else that I think is also nonsense in this kind of genre, and that's being stunned. Stunning enemies is fine. Stunning enemies obviously is fine, but when you're stunned in Hellboy, you lose two-thirds of your next turn. So basically all you can do is stand up, and maybe you probably won't even have an extra action to do because you're probably you're spending your extra cubes fending off the attacks that, that rain down on you while you were knocked down anyway. And I am sick to death of skipping turns. I'm just completely sick to death of it. Agreed. They could have, there's a number of ways they could have done it. They could have done it that they said all act, enemies now activate twice, which is in, in many ways even harder for the heroes, but doesn't feel as silly as, oh, it's my turn, I stand up, I'm done. I, I'm, I'm so sick and tired of this, Walker. Agreed. Or how have a dice, like roll your defense, if you get blah, 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 then you have a chance to get up, maybe you don't. Maybe, Anything I don't know. I just... All right, so some good points I have left. Every character is depicted very well, and they're all very different. And from what I've heard from the comic books, there's not a huge array of good characters that you can choose from. So all the normal normal guys are all in there, and I think they represented them very well, and they're all very different and unique to play. Yes, the character differentiation is nice, but this, I think, is actually kind of one of the, 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 the negative points. Compared to a lot of other games of this ilk, there's a relative small number of characters, even when you have the all-in, grotesque, overboard uh, Kickstarter edition. Because, again, in the source material, there's not but a whole lot think, of options. But look what we had the problem with Batman, when you have yes, so many, right? There's so many rules you have to you know bring in and remember if you bring them that how fast anyway this goes the other part how fast it plays yes because there's such a small pool of characters you know what they all do even when you have a new player you've played that character before or you've seen them being played you know exactly what they do you can help them out and the game goes super fast what we get games off in about an hour yep fantastic first game we played rules explanation setup tear down 90 minutes and that was with a full complement of four players. Subsequent games where even w- uh, subsequent games set up teardown rules explanation with three players have been like 75 minutes. When there's no rules explanation, an hour easy. No problem. All the tiles are the same. You just need to worry about the shape of the map and setting out doors. So a lot of the cumbersome setup that a lot of games like that you don't have. And you just get to jump right in. And the figure count is just right. You're not swarmed by enemies. So you're spending all the time moving enemies. Like, okay, this guy moves two spaces and this guy yeah, moves like, two yeah, spaces. Yeah, swarm chasing guys down the right. endless map. Yeah. But sometimes you end up in situations where there's, you know, a dense crowd of enemies that's a problem. So it's just right in that sense. And they managed to find a way to get all of uh, all of this this sense of, of adventure in a very, very quick playing time. So I think we should talk about the scenarios. 
Yes, I do have that on here. What do you, are, what do you, how do you, what do you think of the scenario system, Walker? I think it's fantastic. They have a different mechanic for the bosses and the way it, and it's not as though they shows up and then suddenly this mechanic comes in. It's uh, going on through the whole game. Either you're trying to find clues and you're collecting these tokens, but you're not exactly sure what you need these tokens for. And I think that's kind of cool. You know, it gives you this, you know, sense of mystery. You know, what are we going to do with this information? How are we going to apply it against this monster? And then finally the big baddie comes out and says, oh, you can use these tokens to reduce his defense or you can use them to re-roll or you can use them to stun him. The way they make you get the way they let you acquire these tokens and the way they make you spend them is different every time and, and well done. Every scenario basically has a, a two-act structure. In Act 1, you're progressing through the map and acquiring as many of these so-called insight tokens as you possibly can. And as, as Walker said, you don't know what these insight tokens are for much of the time. Maybe during Act 1 you'll find out, but most of the time you don't. And then Act 2 starts roughly when the boss shows up. And then you get to discover why you were collecting these inside tokens. Sometimes you need to beat the boss, sometimes you don't. Sometimes you just need to run away. And those parts are great. The the, the sort of suspen- sus- suspension of mystery, it's not a tremendous uh, shock of insight or novel game mechanisms what the inside tokens are for. But I love the fact that in this basic structure of running around getting clues it really manages to inject some sense of suspense. Because I, I've commented before, I'm sick to death of the Arkham games of FFG where I'm just running around grabbing clues, where the clues are just this res- point resource that I, that I need to hurdle or throw at a challenge. Whether it's Eldritch Horror or Arkham Horror or the Arkham Horror CCG, I'm just sick to death of, of like racking up a scoreboard of clues. These feel consequential. These insights that you're gathering in Hellboy feel much more consequential and much more interesting because you know they're going to be tied thematically into some, to some second act. The problem is, there are two major problems. One of them I didn't think was going to be a major problem, but was. There's no endgame text, which is strange. The scenarios have a setup. I was going to use that as my segue into the bad points, Mark. Well, okay. Like you said, fantastic setup. This is what you're going to do. This is what you, where you need to go. This is why you're here. Creaky old barn. You know, you know whispers in the night. And, and with, with the same kind of wry sense of sardonic humor of the main characters. Exactly. And then during the game, things that pop up, cool, like tomes, you can use this tome to do that. You go into this room and this happens and, and this monster pops up and he comes crashing through the floor and blah, blah, blah. And this is what you need to do now. And you get all worked up, get your big items out and you kill them. And then it's like, oh, quit, we did it. Then, you know, what's the end story? You know, what happened? And there's nothing. There's no synopsis, no, you know, pat on the back, no award ceremony. And games really need that. They need to, you know, you, know, you, you, know, you, you, you know, save the person that's in, in distress. You know, you, you know, you bring the town back from destruction. You cure the poison, whatever it is. It's nice to have that, you know, just three lines of, of, of minimal text to say that, you know, good job or, you know, even the opposite. That's one good thing that the Arkham Horror card game did well. Even when you did poorly, there was a little storyline that says, you know, well, you know, at least you did this or, you know, next time try this. Or even though you didn't, you know, do these particular points, you know, this is what happened. There you go. In some ways, it feels churlish complaining about it because, again, it there, there's there's a little bit more thematic texture in the game of Hellboy than there is of something, say, like Massive Darkness or Seal Team Flicks or, or lots of other things like that where it's just an intro paragraph and nothing else. But because they do it so well throughout, I really would have liked those three extra lines at the end. I'm shocked at how much I feel like I miss it because we've been going through this and it's, again, very much like the figure density, very much like the action management. It's just the right amount. Reading aloud paragraphs of text can get really boring really quick, but they know just the right amount of text to read. I would have loved there to be that nice little epilogue, especially if you win. Now, people on Board Game Geek, 
have been supplying this lacuna of a missing text. I've read a couple. They're pretty okay. I don't know if I'm, I'm going to necessarily print them out and, and want to do them all the time, but it's at least something. In fact, it's based on a literary piece. You'd think yes. that there would be something. Yeah, and, and they already have the physical type of component necessary to do it. Worst case scenario, they just would have had to print out an extra card for each scenario. All right, speaking about printing on cards. Oh, yeah. So when when you have a rule on a card and the rule goes a little bit long, we're going to stop printing on the card and just finish off in the rule book. Apparently that's a thing. Yeah, so one of the... The rules presentation overall, I'm going to say, is a little weak. The organization of the rule book isn't so hot. Some of the presentation is weird. Some of the important stuff is buried and difficult to find. One of the character's special abilities that the walker is talking about specifically has a consequence that is that is only mentioned in passing in one part of the rule book. Uh, there's a very serious erratum on one of the scenarios that leaves out a very crucial part of the game elements. So overall, some of the QC is not as hot as it could be, which, again, given that how simple the game is and how quick and accessible it is, is a bit of a problem, so that, that that's unfortunate. So go check the fact and errata uh, before you play your first game and make sure you're down on the rules cold. Now, it's a co-op game, so if you get the rules wrong, it's not a huge deal. But it is a, a little unfortunate in that sense. So my... Uh, can I talk about bad things now, Walker? Yes. Okay. Yes. We're, we're, I segue you know, perfectly into it. So go ahead. Okay. Thank you. So my biggest knock against Hellboy is that the scenarios are not replayable. So some of them are more replayable than others. Now the rule book says you can replay scenarios endlessly because some of the random details change. And for some scenarios, that's true. I would say roughly in the base game, the base game has six different scenarios, which as for quantity, I'm not, a, I'm not entirely certain how acceptable that is because a good third of them I would classify as not remotely worth replaying at all. I was perfectly willing to deal with the mechanical creakiness of the pure victory conditions of the scenarios because I was along for the ride and because I didn't know what I was... Well, I knew what I was doing in the first act, but I didn't know what it was leading to. I didn't know what the the reveal was going to be. Now that I know what the reveal is, I can say that if the scenario was just presented as a whole bunch of rules up front, the scenario is broken. As a first-time experience, it's fine. It's great. It's a fine experience. You go and do your things. But if it were all presented up front, entirely broken. Never want to play again. And the other scenarios that aren't entirely broken to replay don't have that same charm. It's not like, oh, I better collect all these clues because I need them for something, which surprisingly works really well. It's like, I need these clues because I know exactly what they're going to do. So I know exactly how many I need. I can math that out. Okay, let's go do this. Which is not as fun. In one of the Kickstarter exp- uh, expansions, there are two more case files, and there's another Kickstarter expansion past that that introduces a make-your-own-scenario system, which I have not yet tried, but I'm very, very curious about, because how much replayability that injects to the system, I don't know. Now, on your player boards, every character has a whole bunch of special abilities. Now, there would have been a nice thing to put on the bottom to say which actions are free, because there's a bunch of free actions that you can do, and sometimes it's very unclear and sometimes they're free and sometimes they're not, or when you can do them, and it would have been nice just to add that onto the player card. Similarly, the rule summary on the back of the rulebook is pretty bad. It leaves out some substantial elements. I was, again, to, it's, it's weird that I'm comparing the two games so much. The, the rule summary on the back of the rulebook of Seal Team Flicks is very good. It's comprehensive. It go, walks you through an entire round. Whereas the rule summary on the back of Hellboy leaves out entire phases of the game just because they assume you don't need to be reminded of the summary. It's like, well, if you're going to give me a summary of the different phases in order, I'm going to assume that it's going to be comprehensive. And similarly, there's no reference that, as you say, details the basic actions and which ones are free or not. I agree. The other one is there's this element of the game which are 
actual frogs. So these like, and they're sort of like train elements, which, which is fine. Like I said, this is a very nitpicky thing, but it's just the fact that the rest of the game flows so smoothly and everything else makes sense. This is a, some, something that's sometimes a figure, sometimes is not a figure. Sometimes it'll, it'll reduce your dice, but it doesn't act as a figure in other ways. And, and sometimes to some players, it can be confusing. Yeah, in particular, the one that tripped up somebody we were playing with regularly is the fact that these frogs, so there are the frog baddies who attack you, and then there are the swarms of frogs that don't, and they don't burn up. You know, they can be in the middle of a room that's on fire, that's been burning down, and the fire is spreading everywhere. By the way, just parenthetically, Hellboy does fire better than, I think, almost any other game. The way 100%. that it spreads, it, it's natural, sometimes it burns out. It, it doesn't take forever to, to track. Exactly. It's, it's, again, really smooth, really well done. And gives you the right amount of hampering. Uh, fire is often used as a way to just make the game static and you have to hunker down. It's like, okay, that's, that area's on fire. We're never going to go there. That was one of my big complaints about the other Seven Sins. Uh, the fire in Agents of Moloch was usually Ridiculous. a pain, usually a pain to deal with. Fire here is great. Uh, I encourage you to go start fires. Fires, 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 fires. Open brackets in the context of playing Hellboy the board game. Close brackets. But yeah, the the, the frogs don't burn up, and that would that causes a serious degree of confusion. You're right. It's a it's a weird. It's one of the only jagged edges in an otherwise extremely smooth edged game. Yes, and the other one. This is like I said, nitpicky, and we already talked about it, is the player the the attack order, the priority order. And if you do get a, a large amount of enemies on the thing, you're constantly adjusting this this track over and over again, which is not a huge thing. But like I said, when a, in a game that moves so smoothly, it is a fiddly bit. Fair enough. Then I think we've been spoiled lately with miniature games, even though this is not a miniature game, with the amount of different enemies that you get to play against. So, you know, you get, you know, 15 different types of monsters. In this, you get frog people and frog swarms period and that's for all the scenarios and you're gonna and then there's three different uh end bosses you know rasputin giant oh should I, is, is spoilers no i don't think so no. rasputin giant tentacle beast or giant frog person so maybe it should be fine i'm not sure but like i said i think we've just been spoiled lately with these huge kickstarters with you know 50 million different types of of enemies and so on and so forth but at least two different kinds would have been nice we're left to wonder, basically, could the game have been as smooth with slightly more variety in enemy types? I don't know. The answer could very well be no. But you're right. Because we've been so spoiled, it is an open question. Now, there's well, an I, would, I would have almost been as happy with exact same stats. I know I probably would have complained about it. Sure. Exact same stats, different, different sculpts. Yeah. Just to, so there's some sort of variety. There is an expansion with uh, everyone's f- favorite stock pulp enemy Nazis. And it also introduces a, a new boss type. But even then, what we're talking about is two enemy types, uh, you know. So it's, it's, I would say that the base game is what you would call frog heavy. I would give it 10 tadpoles out of 10 for frog representation. Exactly. I give it three ribbits out of three to ribbit. If you love, if you like Hellboy, if you've read Hellboy, if you have any interest in Hellboy, I think you will love this game. But I am done. I'm done with light miniature games, co-op games like this. I've already said this before. I've played so many of them with, you know, dice pooling and just basic mechanics. I want, I want heavy. I want super heavy Euro-like skirmish miniature game. Where is it? Cena <laughs> Tempor. Bring it on. Okay. So sorry. I, I, I've listened to some videos now, so I know how to say it. Sorry. Sina Tempora. 
Yeah, Cinetempora is a myth. Doesn't exist. Stop making up stop making up fake games. Yeah. It's weird. I feel like I should be done, but I I I have to say that there's just enough new stuff and it's sufficiently smooth and light that I am looking forward to more experiences with the Hellboy system. I can completely respect, though, your being entirely done. I'm surprised the extent to which I really like this system. You know, I say that. That's just off the cuff. You know you know, I'm going to be at the table every time they come up. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's, it's, it's strange. But <laughs> you have to admire how much they get out of a very accessible, compelling package. And I think that mechanically what uh, James Hewitt, uh, Hewitt and Sophie Williams have done is, is pretty darn impressive. Again, considering that it could have just been a throwaway licensed property. And I really do like how they've addressed some of the recurring problems in the genre. So even though, yes, I am still kind of sick to death of the co-op dungeon crawly type adventure game, they've done enough different that I've really enjoyed my time and I really want to see... I would like to see more scenarios. I'd like to see how the make a scenario system works. If they're going to release more expansions down the road with more scenarios and more enemy types, I'll probably pony up for that as well. So while I completely respect the fact that some people are overloaded and done, one has to acknowledge that Hellboy yeah. at least has done some new yeah, stuff. Yeah, this is it. If, if your group does not have one of these games in its group and you want to introduce your group to a cooperative adventure miniature game like this this is the one 100 yeah. percent. this is the one i would suggest every single time uh with the low number of heroes that you can choose from super tight rule system easy going easy to learn rules that make sense and is fun to play that's hellboy so that's going to do it for us this week. Thanks very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at the games you like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236, and you can find us on Patreon. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again very much for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time, and always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong.